want to thank Corey for leading us today in the praise team. Chad is at Lake Barkley with a group of uh, college-age young people doing a week of camp. And uh, always appreciate Corey taking the lead. We've been moving slowly through the book of Acts. This will be session number 12 in that book. Acts chapter 8 opens with an introduction of a new character. A new character in the church. A man that God will use to eternally impact everyone in this room. He's going to be introduced in chapter 8. This man will become the man through which much of the New Testament will be written, inspired by, inspired through, I should say. He would become the apostle to the Gentiles. And looking around the room today, that's us. That's why his appearance on the scene affects every one of us in this room. He will become the apostle to the Gentiles, but not until he messes up a bunch of people's lives. His name is Saul. It's interesting that Saul is introduced at the same time, at the same time that trouble starts in the church. Satan is working. When we closed last Sunday, what were they doing? They were stoning Stephen to death. And now, chapter 8 opens. Verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, what, to Stephen's stoning. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day. Persecution's about to start, and Saul is introduced, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, listen, here's important. As the persecution begins, as Saul is introduced... All the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Run for your life. Chapter 8 opens up with run for your life. They have killed Stephen. For why? Why did they kill Stephen? Because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's dead. Run for your life. Did you notice that the church had a period of peace and growth? It was quiet for a while, and then trouble has arrived. I've noticed something. That's kind of how it works. It seems to have a time of peace and quiet, and then trouble erupts. Saul is a witness to Stephen's murder. Saul is a man of authority, symbolized by the fact that they laid their coats at his feet while they began throwing rocks at Stephen. Saul was a Jewish authority figure that was publicly endorsing this attack on these Jesus people. He will become the main character in the book of Acts. He will become the main character in the book of Acts. He doesn't know it, not at this point. But not yet. Persecution of the church began that day, and notice that everyone except the apostles scattered. Run for your life. Everyone except the apostles scattered. Run for your life. Now, I don't know what your childhood was like, but I'm going to tell you, when I was a child, there was a phrase, a sentence that we would regularly use when it's time to stop negotiating. When it's time to stop plotting and planning, it's a time that there's no more nothing to be said, run for your life. When we were playing in the yard and when we were the kids running around, there was a code sentence, a code phrase, and that phrase was, run for your life. And when that came out of somebody's mouth, who, regardless of who they are in the crowd, guess what the kids do? They scatter. I don't even know why we were running, but it's like when you say that, you run. So I did something this past a couple of days. I had my two older grandsons, Case and Colt, over at the house, and I wanted to test to see if this is still applicable. 
Because you know what? That, that's been a long time ago since I was a kid. So I bring Case and Colt over to me. We're sitting out in the front yard, and I said, I'm curious, what do you do, what should you do when someone, especially an adult, looks at you and says, run for your life? And immediately, without saying anything else, they both took off running through the yard. Ran plumb over the hill. It still works. Run for your life. I got a question. Why didn't the apostles run for their lives? Did you notice that? Everybody else is running. You see, they can't even keep Peter and John in jail. Maybe the apostles know something nobody else does. If you remember just in a previous session, Peter and John, they throw them in jail and the angel unlocks it and they just walk out. So I guess they had a not-so-much-run-for-your-life mentality after an angel has let you out of jail. But everybody else, what are they doing? They're running for their life. Why? Because Stephen's dead. This is real, okay? This is real. This is not some make-believe threat. Stephen's dead. Did you hear they killed Stephen? Run for your life. Do you see the two spirits? I do. One holy and one unholy. They are at work in Jerusalem. It is a spiritual war. Satan is trying to stop the church and God is going to use this persecution. Listen, here's the foundation today. Satan is going to try to stop this movement of God called the church and God's going to do something. He's going to use this persecution, this run-for-your-life event to fulfill biblical prophecy. Are you with me? Satan thinks he's going to squelch the church and God's going to use the same event to grow the church, to spread the church, to fulfill the words of prophecy that came from Christ. Do you remember how the book of Acts opens? Right before Jesus ascends to the Father? Let me read it to you. Acts 1 verse 7. He, Jesus, replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. What's the, what's the reference? Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The Father alone has the authority to set those times. And they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will, you will. Something's going to happen. Now, listen, at this point, it hadn't happened. And what's he say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses. Where? You're going to tell people about me everywhere. And here it comes, here it comes. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in Anderson County. That's us and the rest of the world, the ends of the earth. Witnesses that will expand from Jerusalem and if you know anything about the geography and the words in that area, Jerusalem is the city, Judea is the around that city, and Samaria is heading up north, and the ends of the earth is everything else. You will. You're going to get a power. It's prophetic. It came on the day of Pentecost. You will be my witnesses, and you're not going to just stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to send you out. Now, how will these witnesses expand and fulfill this prophecy of Jesus? Persecution. What's going to motivate them to leave Jerusalem? Persecution. Let's, let's make it simple. What's going to motivate the expansion of the gospel outside of Jerusalem? Run for your life. Stephen's dead. You have to understand something here. Many of the Samaritans were considered half-breeds and Jews in Jerusalem. And where are they going to? They're going, the prophecy of Jesus is you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in the city, in Judea, in the outer realms of the city, and then you're going to go to Samaria. Well, the Jews didn't really like the Samaritans. In fact, the Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. Now, Jerusalem believers are running into Samaria. Why? Because they're running for their life. And that's the close place to go hide. 
in Samaria. How's God going to fulfill the prophecy? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And now they're running. They're, run they're not walking into Samaria. They're running into Samaria. They are a people, the Samaritans. You ever wonder why there was so much hatred between the two people groups? They were a people of mixed race. When the northern kingdom was attacked in, by Assyria and the southern kingdom was attacked by Babylon, they carried them off as refugees and then they, they, they intermarried with the pagan Assyrians and they intermarried with the pagan Babylonians and they produced what the, the Jews considered half-breeds. They didn't accept them. They didn't like them. Why? Because the law of Moses says you're not supposed to marry a foreigner. You're supposed to marry inside your own people, at least in the Jewish application. It's like a battle between the north and the south. The north became Israel, Samaria specifically, and they didn't like the south, and the south didn't like the north. But Jesus has made it clear before he left earth, you will be my witnesses in Samaria. Satan is at work to stop the church and God is going to use the exact same event to expand the church. I can assure you that I would not use that method. I can assure you there's nobody in this room that would use that method. How are you going to fulfill prophecy? Let somebody be killed. And then let everybody run for their life. But God is going to use this method. I don't understand why it happens this way. I know this, the Word of God must be fulfilled. It's going to happen. Now, why didn't the apostles run? Everybody except the apostles is running for their lives. Why didn't the apostles run? And I answer the question with the question, who's in charge here anyway? Have things gone totally out of control and God has left the scene and Satan is doing everything? I feel like the Holy Spirit is directing the apostles to stay put. Why doesn't Saul just drag the apostles out into the street and stone them too? You ever wonder if Saul and all these people hate this Jesus movement so bad, why don't they just take Peter and John, the leaders, drag them out in the street and do to them what they did to Stephen? You ever wonder? It's a good question. They can't. Not yet. Who's in charge here? God is still in charge. Verse 2. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Why isn't he dragging, you know, Peter and John, why, why isn't he getting them? He came. Game on. The spiritual war has begun. I'm going to ask everybody a question. With what you've heard so far today, would you join this church? At this particular time in history of the church, would you say, yep, I want in. Everybody's running for their lives. Stephen lays dead. Would you join this church? We have trouble getting people to join this church because our teaching lasts more than 45 minutes. Would you join that church? That's why you've heard me say during this entire session on the book of Acts that I've saw something that disturbs me. I don't find the modern American church looks anything like the church in the book of Acts. Nothing like it. Because guess what? People are joining this church. In the midst of the persecution, they're joining this church. Would you? You would if you knew who Jesus was. You would if you knew who Satan was. And you would if you knew what the eventual outcome of both of those people is. Those connected to Jesus and those connected to Satan. Yeah, you would. That's the dividing line that was being drawn in Jerusalem. Who knows? And who doesn't know? What? Who knows who Jesus is? They're on this side of the line. On the other side of the line are people who don't know who Jesus is. 
This war is getting ugly and people are dying for their faith. Do you think Satan can stop the church? No. But I tell you what he will do. He will stop some people from believing. He can't stop the church. It's impossible. But what he can do is individually stop some people from believing. But he won't stop believers. Why? He can't. You remember a couple weeks ago we talked about this evil spirit, the Holy Spirit, and, and we came to this spiritual conclusion. Jesus can cast out Satan, but Satan cannot cast out Jesus. He doesn't have the power to look at Jesus and say, go. But Jesus has the power to look at Satan and say, go. So he can't stop the church. Verse at 4. But the believers who were scattered, what are they going to do while they're running for their lives? They preach the good news. I told you he's going to fulfill prophecy in this instance. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria. Here we go. Here's where everything's going to happen today. In Samaria. And he told the people there about the Messiah, about Jesus. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Many evil spirits, run devil, run devil, run devil, run. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victim. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city of Samaria. Philip was one of the seven introduced in Acts chapter 6 along with Stephen, remember? Philip has grown up. In fact, when he's introduced, he's a table waiter like Stephen. But Philip has grown up. He's not waiting tables anymore. He's preaching. Listen, listen, listen. He's not just preaching. He's preaching in the midst of persecution. He's preaching in the middle of the fact that they're killing preachers. And God is doing miracles through Philip. While he, why is he in Samaria? Why is he in Samaria? Because they're running for their lives. But while he's running, he's preaching. This former table waiter is casting out evil spirits. This former table waiter is healing paralyzed people. This was happening in the middle of a great spiritual battle. The battle actually did something. The battle actually amplified and accelerated the expansion of the church. I want to tell you, that's how it works today too. The opposition actually accelerates the growth of the church. Most people don't believe that. But it's true. It's a, it's a spiritual pruning where serious people get more serious and casual people get out. Great joy was coming to the region in the midst of great persecution. And you would think the opposite would be true. Philip had a power, but there was another power at work in Samaria. I want you to understand something. We're going we're to turn into a new section. Philip had a power. God had obviously placed some some, the, the apostles laid hands upon Philip and Stephen and these, these uh, seven men, and, and there's something that's happening inside of them. They've got a power. They're casting out evil spirits. They're healing people physically and spiritually. But listen, there's another power in Samaria. His name is Simon, the sorcerer, a powerful magician. Verse 9. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years. Amazing, the people of Samaria and claiming to be, claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his what? His magic. The sorcerer Simon from Samaria. It's got a nice ring to it. Good mark. I can see it on the side of a, a van. Simon the sorcerer from Samaria. The people of Samaria associated Simon's power with God. Did you notice it? But 
was Simon's power from God? Really? Is there another power in Samaria? Is there another power? Is there another spirit? Simon had been preaching his own message until Philip arrives. Who's in charge here anyway? Simon is a hero in Samaria. He's respected. He has a great power. He has the power of God. Everybody runs to Simon until Philip arrives. Verse 12. But now the people believe Philip's message. Now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed. What? What? Then Simon, the sorcerer from Samaria, he believed and he's baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went. He was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. This persecution sent a new preacher. I want you to, as we go through this story today, I want you to understand, what is it that put Philip in Samaria? Persecution. This persecution has brought a new preacher to Samaria. A totally new message called the gospel of Jesus Christ. A new demonstration of power. A new demonstration. It doesn't look anything like Simon the sorcerer from Samaria. No, this is a new power from Jesus Christ. Even Simon the sorcerer became a believer. He was baptized. And the Bible says he followed Philip everywhere. Philip came to Samaria preaching a name, the name, Jesus. And what happens? What happens in this town? People are being baptized. Men and women are accepting the gospel as absolute truth. They're accepting the name as absolute truth. The news of this Samaritan awakening, the news of this Samaritan uh, revival gets back to Jerusalem to the apostles who are not running for their lives. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. Philip's been baptizing. But the Holy Spirit has not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John did something. They laid their hands upon these believers in Samaria, those that Philip had already baptized. Peter and John laid their hands on these believers in Samaria, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an interesting event, and many people struggle with this particular event. The people in Samaria heard the gospel preached by the Holy Spirit-filled Philip, and they were baptized in water. It was a water baptism. I'm convinced they were immersed in the water. Philip did what he was supposed to do. He baptized them and it says specifically, he only baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. But they did not receive the Holy Spirit. Why? It's a good question. Philip was probably asking the question, why? Why? Do you remember Peter's Holy Spirit-filled sermon on the day of Pentecost? When all this stuff began? Let's read it. Because I want to know why. Why did Philip baptize these Samaritans and the Holy Spirit didn't come? And here comes Peter and John and they just lay their hands on them and pray and the Holy Spirit comes. Why? Why? I want to know. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2 when this whole church thing starts. Peter gets up, verse 38. Peter replied, each of you. He's talking to Jewish people in Jerusalem. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Philip's doing. Repent of your sins and be baptized 
in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you've received forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Well, they did. That's what Philip did. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will. It's a promise from God. But when Philip did, they didn't. Next verse. Verse 39, Acts chapter 2. This promise is to you. Whose promise? It's not Peter's promise, is it? It's God's promise. This promise is to you and to your children. Here it comes. And even to the Gentiles. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Then why didn't the people of Samaria receive the Holy Spirit when Philip baptized them? It's still a good question, isn't it? Peter clearly connects water baptism with the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's no way you can deny what he just said in Acts 2.38. Peter clearly connects baptism in water to the coming of the Holy Spirit. But when Philip baptized them in water, the Holy Spirit didn't come. Why was it necessary for Peter and John to come and pray over them? To lay their hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to tell you, if you'll study on this issue, there is much theological debate about this question. And I'm going to tell you the reality. Here's the reality. Nobody really knows the answer to that question. You were hoping I had something real brilliant to say right now, weren't you? So I'll ask some questions. Did Philip baptize in the name of Jesus without any expectation of the Holy Spirit? I don't know. It did say that he only baptized in Jesus' name. Was the first Holy Spirit event outside Jerusalem, outside of Judea, going to require the apostles? Everybody listen real carefully to what I'm about to say. This is the first recorded event of the Holy Spirit outside of Jerusalem and Judea. Not to specifically Gentiles, because the Samaritans weren't really considered Gentile, but they weren't really considered Jewish either, even though from their own perspective they kind of considered themselves Jewish. Was it going to require Peter and John to be there for this to start? The reason I asked that was, who was Jesus talking to when he prophetically announced, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? He's talking to the apostles. Some have called this a Samaritan Pentecost. And just as the apostles were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, they maybe would need to be in Samaria for this movement to begin in Samaria. Because it was through them that Jesus prophesied the Holy Spirit coming, even to the Gentiles. Maybe God wanted Peter and John to personally witness these Samaritans coming to Christ. Maybe this was for Peter and John. Maybe quit looking at it as if the Samaritans needed Peter and John. And maybe it's the other way. Listen, maybe Peter and John needed to see the Samaritans. It was for them. Maybe it's how they looked at Samaritans. And they needed to be there for their own witness. Later in the book of Acts, Peter will personally witness to the first Gentile. His name is Cornelius as he comes to Christ. Remember, the Samaritans were kind of Jewish even though they had intermarried with non-Jews while in captivity. In this event, Peter and John are witnessing the expansion of the church outside of Jerusalem, outside of the Jewish people. Here, here's the main event. Peter and John are personally witnessing a supernatural event. Something is happening outside Jerusalem. Outside of the traditional Jewish circle. Half-breeds, mixed race, Jew, Gentile, are becoming Christians. I don't want to get hung up on this, but I don't want to miss anything either. So I want to read 14 through 17 again. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message... They sent Peter and John there. 
As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John, John laid their hands on these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. So is this a technicality, or is this important? I believe the words of Jesus to be very important. And do you remember Jesus' great commission? Anybody remember his great commission? Matthew 28. What's he say? Verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples to all the nations. Well, that would be Samaria, wouldn't it? That would be the United States, wouldn't it? All nations. And do what when you go there? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what do we do? What do we say here at Nineveh when we baptize somebody? What do we do? Some of you, have you noticed what we do? It's not careless. We do think about it quite carefully. We combine this Matthew 28 text with the Acts chapter 2 text. We combine them both. In fact, we even add to that, we ask, have you repented of your sins? Because all three of those have application. What we don't do is usually call Peter and John afterwards to come lay their hands on you. We have not done that yet. Does it matter? Ask the people of Samaria. And by the way, you know what I'm supposed to do after that? I'm supposed to teach you to obey everything that God has commanded. And I'm supposed to tell you that He, Christ, the Spirit of Christ, will be with us continually until the end of the age. So what happened next to Philip? We took a sidestep. So what happened next to Philip? What happened next to Simon the sorcerer from Samaria? Do you think Satan has left town now that Philip and John have arrived? <laughs> Do you think Satan says, okay, Peter's here. We got to go. Next verse, verse 18. When Simon the sorcerer from Samaria saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered Peter and John, he offered them money to buy this power. Bad idea. Let me have this power too, Simon the sorcerer from Samaria said, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Can you buy a gift for yourself? <laughs> Some of you say, yeah, I do it all the time. Can you buy a gift from yourself? Well, it wouldn't be a gift, would it? Can you buy the Holy Spirit? Let me just say something. It's a bad idea to even bring it up that you can purchase the Holy Spirit. Simon the sorcerer from Samaria wants to buy God's presence. Verse 20. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift, God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Simon the sorcerer has become a believer, and he's been baptized. But something's wrong. Everybody listen. Did you notice the text? Simon the sorcerer from Samaria, he believes in Jesus, right? It's what it says. He heard Philip's preaching. He believed Philip's preaching. He's baptized. He's a believer. He's following Philip around, but something's wrong. Something's missing. But Simon the sorcerer still has a problem with his heart. Peter announced it. Did you catch it? Your heart is still not right with God. Your outside looks okay, but something inside of you has a problem. Peter then brings up a word that nobody wants to talk about. Did you catch it? Some of you did. Some of you read over it. Peter then brings up a word that preachers today don't want to say out loud. I don't even like to say it. Repent. 
Peter looks at Simon the sorcerer from Samaria and says, Simon, repent. Before I read it, what do you think is going through Simon's mind right now? And, and the reason I say that, he has just watched God's supernatural power come through Peter. He has just seen this amazing supernatural power come through Peter. And now Peter says what? May your money be destroyed with you for thinking that you can buy this. May your money be destroyed with you. So what's going through Simon? I bet Simon's heart rate has just gone up. Thinking, what have I just done? What have I just done? Verse 22. Peter says, repent of your wickedness and pray. Pray to the Lord. Perhaps, Peter says, I can't give you any guarantees now, buddy. Repent and pray, and perhaps God will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy, and you are held captive by what? By what? Sin. Repent and pray. Church, can I say that's a pretty good advice on most applications? Repent and pray. Bitter jealousy. Simon wants his fame and fortune back. Anybody see it? What was Simon before Philip came to town? He's famous. He's got center stage. He's got the great power. And then Philip comes. And suddenly he's not famous anymore. He wants to be back on center stage. He wants to be called the great one. Bitter jealousy and captive to sin. You see, true Jesus followers have yielded center stage. True Jesus followers, they don't want center stage anymore. They're quite happy to get off the stage and put Jesus up on the stage for it is Him that we are to make famous. Now what do you think Simon's thinking? <laughs> Maybe run for your life. Run for your life. Run for your life. You see, that's what put Philip in Samaria in the first place. Stephen's dead. Run for your life. I can tell you that a great fear swept over Simon. And I can tell you as I read his response to Peter that he is afraid. Run for your life. Verse 24, Simon, and I'm going to insert with incredible heart palpitations, says to Peter, pray to the Lord for me that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. Sometimes fear is a wonderful thing. Amen? Sometimes fear is a wonderful motivator. Simon had been baptized. Everybody listen. Simon had been baptized, but there was something missing. There was an evil power still at work inside of Simon. Pride is a powerful force of darkness. Human pride is a powerful thing, and it does not come from God. Humility comes from God. Pride wants Jesus to be your co-pilot, sharing the starring role with Jesus. But that's not how it works. You see, Simon the sorcerer from Samaria wanted to be famous again. He wanted to be back on center stage where they called him the great one. Give me that power and I'll be famous again. I wonder if John the Baptist describes this better than anyone else in Scripture as he was losing his influence as Jesus was increasing his. You see, John the Baptist was famous. Everybody listen. John the Baptist was famous. When he started preaching in the Judean wilderness, they were coming from everywhere. He had a sellout crowd. Everybody's coming out of the towns, out of the cities, into the wilderness to hear this man who eats locust and wild honey and dresses funny. He's famous. He's got crowds. He's center stage until he meets Jesus. And here's what he says in John 3, 26. So John, John the Baptist, John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, that's what they called John, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, that Jesus guy, 
the one you identified as the Messiah, he's baptizing too. He's cutting into our territory. He's doing it. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. John's going to think, oh, we've got to get a new marketing plan. That's not it, is it? John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare a way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the best man, you see, John just considered himself, I'm the best man. And the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear the vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy. What? At my success? No, 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 no. John gets it. I am filled with joy at Jesus' success. I'm glad they're all going to him. I'm glad that they're being baptized with him. I'm glad because that means that my job to prepare a way for him is nearing its end. And then verse 30. Listen. Some of the most powerful words in all the Scripture. John the Baptist says this, he must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. I want you to contrast John the Baptist to Simon the sorcerer from Samaria. There you go. We, the church, like John, we're supposed to be preparing a way for Jesus. Do you know that's your job assignment, church, people? We, like John, are supposed to be preparing a way for Jesus, making people ready, preparing the bride, the church, for the coming bridegroom, Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing. What do you think you were supposed to be doing? We don't care about our name or our place at center stage, but we feel compelled to make Jesus famous. He alone is the great one. Let's leave Simon for a moment. Here's where it gets interesting to me. Let's leave Simon for a moment and let's go look at Peter and John. Did you notice that this event, this Samaritan revival, caused Peter and John to get out of Jerusalem? Anybody see this coming? They never ran for their lives. They've stayed there. But now there's a revival in Samaria. Philip is baptizing Samaritans. Peter and John have gone to Samaria. Peter and John have gone to Samaria. There's a story here. Remember, Jews don't like Samaritans. They looked at them as half-breeds, pagans. Do these two guys, Peter and John, have history with Samaritans? Anybody know? Do these two guys, Peter and John, have some history with Samaritans? John does. Luke 9.51. This is before Jesus goes to the cross. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village. Here's Jesus and his twelve. He's going, he sent messengers ahead to a what? To a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. They don't like each other. When James and John, here's John, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Let's toast them, Jesus. Let's toast them. Come on, let's toast them. We don't like them anyway. Jesus turned and he rebukes them. Now there's two messages there. He turns and rebukes them. No, we're not going to toast them. But did you see the second message? So they went to another village. That village that wouldn't receive Jesus didn't get Jesus. He went to another village. I wonder if John remembered that when he entered Samaria with Peter. I wonder if John's having a recollection. Yeah, you know when I wanted to toast these people and now guess where I'm standing? Among them. 
Samaritans are being baptized and Samaritans are receiving the Holy Spirit and Samaritans are receiving Jesus. They're receiving the Jesus that previously that one town had rejected. Jesus didn't come to burn us up. Somebody say hallelujah. Jesus didn't come to burn us up. Jesus didn't come to set us on fire. In fact, he came to save us from being burned up, from being set on fire. Run for your life. Now, in the book of Acts, chapter 8, who's preaching in Samaria? In the book of Acts, you, John just says, let's toast them. Back in the Gospel of Luke. Who's preaching in Samaria now, John? Now, let's go back to Simon, the recovering and repentant sorcerer. Back to Philip in Samaria, Acts 8.25. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. And they stopped in many, here we go, many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the gospel, the good news. Who's preaching, who's preaching in Samaria now? Peter and John. Who's left Jerusalem now? Peter and John. The very one who asked Jesus to toast them send down fire and destroy them, is now what? By the love of Christ, sharing the same go the gospel with them. I love this story. I got to tell you, I just love this story because persecution set all of this in motion. Trouble brought a revival. Trouble brought an awakening. Now listen, I don't like trouble. Well, I don't like trouble. But I love revivals. I love awakenings. Run for your life, set all this in motion. Opposition, Satan's opposition actually brought people to Christ. Actually, this is the story of life itself. We are all in a run for our life. Everybody in this room, whether you want to say it out loud or not, we are all in a run for our life. The question is, what are you running from? And what are you running to? Satan tries to stop the church, and the church grows bigger. Satan tries to stop the spread of Jesus' name, and the name goes everywhere. The very people that didn't want Jesus to even pass through their town now are asking Jesus to move into their hearts. I love this story, and this story took place as a normal, a normal guy who previously was called to wait on tables, encounters the Holy Spirit and becomes a witness. I love this story because it proves to me something that everyone needs to know today. God specializes in turning tragedy into triumph. Stephen's dead. Run for your life. And the gospel's going everywhere. He's still doing it today. He's still doing it right now. He's doing it in this room right now. Run for your life. So let me, let me wrap this thing up with the question. When should you start running for your life? Now. Today. The Apostle Paul tells us to run this race to win. The Apostle Paul says run this race to win the prize. For not everyone will win the prize. Run the race to win. Can I ask everybody a question? Are you running this race to win? Or you just want to finish? You see, there's going to come a time. Everybody listen. There's going to come a time where it'll be too late to run for your life. Jesus himself tells us about the time that is coming. That people will literally run for their lives. Jesus himself tells of a prophetic future time. Listen, I'm convinced everything in here is going to happen. Everything in here is going to happen. He prophesied to the apostles. They asked him, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he looks at them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. It's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the world. And everything he said in advance has taken place. Everything. Exactly as he said. Well, I'm going to tell you something else he said is going to happen. It's going to happen. 
He tells of a time when people literally will run for their lives. But here's, here's the rest of that story. That event that I'm about to read to you from Matthew 24, I believe, will happen after it's too late for the church to run. After. See, I believe what I'm about to read to you will happen after the rapture of the church. After the bride is called by the bridegroom. This is what's coming. Matthew 24. Jesus says, a day is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel, the prophet, spoke about. But by the way, Daniel prophesied some 500 years before Jesus was born. It's unstoppable. Jesus is saying, it's coming. The day is coming when you're going to see what Daniel, the prophet, spoke about. What? A sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. You know what that means? That there's going to be... The Antichrist is going to come to the rebuilt Jerusalem temple and claim to the world that he is God. A time is coming when you're going to see what Daniel prophesied 500 years ago. A sacrilegious object that causes desecration to the temple, standing in the holy place of the temple. And then what? Then what? What's he telling them for? What do I do if I'm there when that happens? Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Run. This is Jesus. Run for your life. A person out on the deck of the roof must not go down into the house to get his pack. No, no. Run for your life. A person out in the field must not return to even get your coat. Why? No. Run for your life. How terrible it would be for pregnant women. For nursing mothers in those days and pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there, there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. Run for your life. And it will never be so great again. This event that's going to happen. Centered in Jerusalem. Centered around the temple. Centered around an event, a single event where the sacrilegious object that causes the desecration of the Jerusalem temple will take place, prophesied by Daniel, confirmed by Jesus. Verse 22, in fact, unless the time of calamity, it's called the tribulation, unless the time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen one. On the 21st of July, what's it, a little over a week ago, on the Jewish calendar, the 21st of July, our calendar is called the 9th of Av. The 9th of Av on the Jewish calendar. The Jews around the world fast and mourn the 9th of Av. I read that it's, there's, you can't do hardly anything on the 9th of Av. Do you know what, why they fast and why the Jews fast and mourn around the world on the 9th of Av, which would have been our 21st of July? Because it was on the 9th of Av that uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that in itself would be enough to make it take serious. The Jerusalem was destroyed. The Holy presence of God had departed Jerusalem's temple. Nebuchadnezzar came, burned the building down. But then they came back and rebuilt that temple. And in the time of Christ, it was called Herod's temple. And in 70 AD, the Romans tore down the temple a second time. Guess what day they tore it down? On the 9th of all. Same day. Interesting. Who could make that up? So the Jews around the world, they mourn and they fast on the ninth of all. Solomon's temple and the second temple were destroyed on the ninth of all. And that would be enough to get my attention, but there's more. Do you know the first crusades commenced on the ninth of all? And on that ninth of all crusade, 10,000 Jews were killed in the first month. 
also destroying the entire Jewish community in France and in Rhineland, began on the 9th of Av. The Jews were also expelled from England on the 9th of Av in the year 1290. The Jews were expelled from Spain, guess when? On the 9th of Av in the year 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So you might wonder, why? Why are you bringing that up today? I just read to you a prophecy that Jesus said is coming. A day, a time is coming in which you've got to run for your life. Well, on the 21st, the day, excuse me, the day after the 9th of Av, actually the morning following the fasting and the morning, that would be the, our calendar, be the 22nd of July, after they have finished the 9th of Av fast and after they'd finished the 9th of Av morning, at the western wall, at the wailing wall, there is a woman who has gone at daybreak to pray at the wall that I've gone to pray at, the western wall of Jerusalem's temple. And a giant stone weighing hundreds of pounds fell from that wall. Crashed right beside this woman. Didn't hit her. Had it hit her, it would have crushed her. Now some of you say, okay, a stone fell from the western wall. And you know what? Maybe that is it. Maybe a stone fell from the western wall. Interesting that it fell on that particular day. There's a Jewish rabbi that now says that he believes that stone will be the stone that will be used as the cornerstone for the third temple. That God has issued his sign. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you what, I'm paying attention. And the reason I bring that up today is this. I know there's a day when Jesus himself said, when this happens, Run. There's going to be a sacrilegious object placed in the temple. That ha temple has to be rebuilt. And all that happens after, after, all that happens after the church leaves. So when should you run for your life? Now. Now. When should you be telling other people to run for their life? Now. Now. I'm going to ask Corey to come out for the invitation. I'm not sitting here acting like I understand all that. I don't. I don't. Do I understand about that stone that fell on that particular day? No. I, don't. I got an idea, but I don't know for sure. I don't know. I know this. Everything in this book that said going to happen is going to happen. Every word. You know what question they asked him in the beginning of Acts? Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom's going to be restored to Israel. It's going to be. He says, not for you to know the time and the date, but you will be my witnesses in Samaria. I've read Acts chapter 8, and they were his witnesses in Samaria. Why? Because you can't stop it. And he also told us that there's a day coming. There's going to be a sacrilegious object stood standing in the temple mount at the holy place. And he said, run! You know the first half of the tribulation? Probably half of the Gentile population of the earth is going to die. In the second half of the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to die in a single event. Prophesy. Run for your life. And yet I watch the American church in apathy. I watch the American church in apathy regarding individual, what you should be doing in your life. And number two, about there's people around you that do not know Christ and you do nothing to tell them. Do we believe? So we're going to sing a song. And it's our time of decision, time of invitation. I have said what the Holy Spirit has impressed upon me to say today. Run for your life. When should you start? Now. I'll let the Holy Spirit do what he does next. Let's stand.
You make beautiful 
Beautiful things out of dust. He made Adam from dirt. Beautiful things out of dust. He took Stephen's death and used it to spread the gospel in Samaria. Beautiful things out of dust. He takes our messed up lives, our brokenness, our insecurities, our weaknesses. And by the presence of the Holy Spirit, He he makes us new. He makes something beautiful. Father, thank You for Your mercy, for Your grace. Thank You, Lord, that You take something that looks useless, dirt, meaningless, death. You turn it into life. You turn it into something that is beautiful. So, Father, awaken Your church. Awaken Your bride. Put oil in our lamps. Light in our lives. Send us out with this news that there's still time. As of right now, there's still time to run for your life. In Jesus' name, amen.